Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Seema Jelani. Dr. Jelani has been working in and out of the West Bank for the last 19 years, providing aid as a pediatrician. She currently serves as a technical advisor to the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. Together with MAP, Medical Aid for Palestinians, they've deployed EMTs to provide medical care since the war erupted back on October 7th after Hamas's deadly attacks in Israel. In retaliation, Israel has conducted intense bombing and ground campaigns in Gaza, resulting in a healthcare system perennially on the brink of collapse. Under the direction of Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Israeli military has made it increasingly difficult for food and medicine to enter the territory. The conflict then came to a head this past week as Israeli forces opened fire near an aid convoy in Gaza City, killing dozens of Palestinians. In response, President Biden pledged that the United States would begin airdropping humanitarian relief into Gaza. This decision comes after 148 days of grueling warfare, resulting in more than 30,000 Palestinians dead, 70% of whom are women and children. Innocent people got caught up in a terrible war, unable to feed their families, said President Biden. We need to do more. And the United States will do more. While Palestinians have been waiting for the United States to do more, groups like the IRC and MAP have been working overtime in the region to provide some semblance of support to hospitals. They've dispatched trauma doctors, surgeons, pediatricians, water and sanitation experts, because those two things are not given in this conflict. They've dispatched as many people as possible to help mitigate this humanitarian crisis. One of those people is our guest today, Dr. Jelani, who's no stranger to working in conflict zones. In fact, she's worked in refugee rescue boats off the coast of Libya. She's worked in Afghanistan, Iraq, Egypt, Lebanon during the blast, and several other areas of conflict and post-conflict. And yet, after spending two weeks at the Al-Aqsa Hospital in central Gaza this past January, she described it as, quote, the most nightmarish thing I've seen in my career. And so, what exactly she saw 
what we all continue to see in flashes online, is the subject of today's episode. With that, I'd be remiss to not offer a warning to you here at the top. Given the nature of Dr. Jelani's work, she does provide graphic descriptions of her time in hospitals in Gaza. That's not the bulk of this conversation. It's not something we endlessly dwell on, but it is part of it. And so with that warning, I just want to thank Dr. Jelani again for all the time that she gave us this week, for the care, for the vulnerability, and her willingness to share her first-hand account with us on this show, on the record. And with that, here is Dr. Seema Jelani. Dr. Seema Jelani, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I start most episodes asking everyone kind of the same pretty simple question, and yet I suspect this will be a more loaded proposition for you, which is, um, how are you? Are we still asking that question after the pandemic and uh, the cataclysmic scenes that are unfolding and um, all of that? I mean, people do ask me that. And the question is, is how, how do you really want to know? <laughs> and the answer is uh, on this show, absolutely. I am filled with complete gratitude that I have the privilege that I do. I am hyper aware. I'm holding my privilege in my throat as I'm talking to you because I am sitting here talking to you in a silent room, which is not the experience um, of people in Gaza that cannot go one day or any amount of hours without a bombardment, a drone overhead, sniper fire. And I, for some unknown reason, was lucky enough to be born with a passport to have left that behind. And I cling to that in, in hopes of gratitude. And when I, I have a, a daughter, and as you know, I'm a pediatrician. And so when I came back from Gaza, I kissed her hands and her feet and her knuckles and her fingers because I had seen so many traumatic amputations that I just was so comforted and took comfort in her in, in all of that. And so that is how I am, is, is sitting in my gratitude. Otherwise, I think I would be devastated after what I've seen. That gratitude, I think, is tied to a privilege that you and I both have, which is to witness this moment and to speak about it candidly. And I don't think that can be overstated. But as we dive in, I want to counterbalance that privilege with how uh, you've described people that are, quote, continuing to watch the landslide as voyeuristic onlookers to grief. What did you exactly mean by that? I think this conflict is unique. And I can say that having worked in and out of humanitarian aid for about 20 years now, I've worked in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places of conflict, in that we are seeing it unfold on our phones. Mm. If you're in any way connected to social media, you have seen graphic, graphic evidence of the violence. And you've seen it on children, in women, and it feels as sometimes voyeuristic to be watching it if you're not doing something to counter it. Mm. I personally debate that should I be even engaging in watching this because it, it feels voyeuristic. Even after having worked over there. Correct. But then I think, actually, I need to watch this because that is a denial in and of itself. It's, it's still happening whether I watch it or not, right? Mm. I think that especially, you know, I've been to Gaza 2005 prior to Israeli disengagement, and then in 2015, right after the 2014 war. So I had friends there, and I've been in and out of the West Bank for 19 years. And I do feel a sense of duty, a sense of commitment and dedication to friends that are WhatsApping me and telling me how horrific it is. And, and if, I feel like I do have to engage in that space. I also can't go there, witness what I saw, and not speak about it. That, to me, feels complicit especially in the political environment that we sit in, in the U.S. and as an American. And so I do equally think that while it can feel voyeuristic, this is the place that we make change. And, and I'm indebted to people like you for elevating those voices and those stories. 
And so how important it is to speak out about what we are seeing, specifically because there are no foreign journalists. There are plenty of incredible Palestinian journalists, and um, access has been limited in particular. So I'll, I'll start with that. So there is a kind of moral imperative that you're talking about. And I think that tightrope that we're going to try to walk is instructive for having this conversation. And so to tell this story and your part in it, I want to try to do that chronologically. You were set to be dispatched to Gaza on Christmas Day of this past year. But before doing so, you said in one interview that you had to, quote, get things managed with your family. What did that mean in regards to you, your husband, and your daughter that you've already been talking about? On a purely logistical basis, it meant childcare. It meant aligning our flights. My my husband is a journalist who covers the exact same reason, and we often high-five in the hallway and trade suitcases and trade notes on our child, and, and that's how we live our life. So he's very understanding, and for the majority of our relationship, it's been him that has been venturing into war zones and so on. So this was a little bit of a role reversal. Certainly I did as well, but he has done that longer, um, and I've been the one picking up the pieces. So it was a really interesting role reversal. How did he take it? Incredibly, wonderfully, completely supportive. It was a family decision. It was an incredibly intense decision, especially as the first emergency medical team with IRC to go and medical aid for Palestinians. So there was no frame of reference. And we had a family conversation around it, um, as we do with, with all of our trips and getting things in order. One of the things I'll reference is when I first went to uh, West Bank in Gaza in 2005, I had told my parents at that time, and my parents are middle class immigrants, uh, my dad is a refugee, and they weren't exactly happiest. You know, they basically said sort of, we have spent our lives dedicated to getting you out of those places. Why would you willingly go back? Exactly. Why would you willingly go back? And so that placed the burden on me. And I carry that with me. So what that means is having a focal point of contact, making sure that we are connected enough that we, if something were to happen, that we would be able to call on those friends and be able to lean on them. All bets are off for Gaza, though. So we can, in terms of the preparation I did, it was also a mental space preparation, telling my daughter that this is different. And you don't have to tell kids, they kind of get the vibe. And what did she say? Well, she asked why, and I said, because it's the right thing to do, and I am going to be trying to help babies that are sick. And she said, okay, well, that makes sense. That I understand that. I think the hug at the end, she understood very well that it was a very different type of leaving. And that was some of the preparation that we did together. Um, yeah. As you fly from Brussels to Cairo and then drive from Cairo to Gaza, with all of this baggage, a professional obligation, a mother, a wife, knowing that you're there to do the work you've been called to do, that you feel summoned to do with your colleagues, how are you processing that in the first 48 hours? I believe I was so tunnel visioned that I'm quite unsure whether I even have processed it at this point. You just focus on every task that you have to get done in order to be able to complete the mission and be successful in some ways. And I, if I'm being honest, I imagine I will have to process that and some of those decisions that were made and interrogate myself further around what criteria, you know, I would use around those decisions. I do know that I thought around, you know, if I if I didn't survive or something were to happen to me, is that I will have shown my daughter that it was a decision worth making in this context, that I had the power to be able to do something. And so I felt as if I should be doing it. You mentioned working in the region in 2005, in 2015, and then again as recently as early January of this year. When you land in Gaza this time around, what do you notice about it in contrast to your past experiences? What stood out to you? So I have worked in refugee rescue boats off the coast of Libya. I have worked in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Egypt, Lebanon during the blast, and several other areas of conflict and post-conflict. 
Nothing could have prepared me for what I saw in Gaza, even outside of the hospital. The drive from Rafa border to our guest house should not have taken very long. It was maybe seven or eight kilometers, if I remember correctly. It took three hours because that, or two and a half to three hours, that road was completely full of forcibly displaced people coming the other way. So we were driving north. They were trying to get south. And it looked as if it was a sea of human tragedy passing us. Children, families, all their worldly possessions packed into vans or on top of donkeys. Vans, if you're lucky, because fuel is such a precious commodity. Pets, kids nodding off while they're breastfeeding. Um, Just everybody sort of packed into these spaces, living on top of one another, searching for shelter, evacuating. Probably not the first time they've evacuated, as I would later find out. And um, that road was completely congested, and I had not seen something like that in terms of population density. And then there were people walking barefoot, looking for wood, looking for garbage bags to use as shelter. Tent cities that every day would also pop up, even more and more people, again, living on top of one another. And that's even before I I went to the hospital itself. You were stationed at Al-Aqsa Hospital. This is a hospital in central Gaza. You're working in partnership with doctors from MAP, the Medical Aid for Palestinians. Upon arriving at the hospital, you described it as, quote, a semi-functional facility. What does semi-functional actually look like on that first day? Well, the reason I say semi-functional is because staff were mostly still intermittently able to show up. Supplies were sometimes available, but were rationed, and patients were being able to be seen, although every day was a different mass casualty, and every day more and more people, not just patients, but people were filtering into the hospital for a safe haven. So the parts that were working is that if it was somewhat staffed, had some supplies, which were still being rationed, patients were being seen. It's still not something that in any other context would have been what I would label as adequate, proper care, but it's working. It's providing its function. As the week went on, it became less and less functional because doctors and healthcare workers there had been displaced, were unable to come to work. Communications were patchy, if anything, and you you didn't know who would come up to work that day or not. There was one day that none of the doctors were able to come because they were all looking for shelter or food or fuel. And what happened is that there's this like colossal bravery amongst those physicians because they are also, in general, afraid of detainment, not just the risk to their lives to coming to the hospital, but any of the reprisals that have happened against healthcare staff. And they continue to show up and they continue to see patients and they continue to pronounce their colleagues and friends and family dead and then continue to see their patients. And so just watching them was a source of great strength for me. Now, you and your colleagues would work between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. during specific daylight hours. Why were you permitted to only work in those six-hour blocks? That was more of a safety and security decision because of daylight hours and also because the route that we would take from our guest house to the hospital had to be deconflicted, is what we call it, with uh, Israeli authorities. And what does deconflicted mean? It's a good question. Within 24 hours of movement from our guest house, because of the volatility of the security situation, we would have to be in contact with Israeli authorities, and, and it's not myself, but someone on our team, and ensure that our route to the hospital is deconflicted, which means that it should not be, we should not be at threat of bombardment during that time. Now, there's a lot of questions around what that means. Sometimes it's not necessarily coordinated between the airstrikes and the ground invasions or the Navy. So there's three different bodies of military that are acting in this space. So you might be deconflicted by air, but there's no guarantee you would be deconflicted by ground. Additionally, if there is a target that is next to you, it means that that could be attacked 
and you would still sustain bomb blast injury, death, or disability because they were right next to you and the bomb goes off next to you. And even though you are deconflicted, that person is not. So you still have a very high risk or it's still very dangerous. And so we are limited in humanitarian access by that system. In the time that you are there working, you would tape voice notes on your iPhone. Mm. On that first day, what did you tape? I believe I mentioned that within the first few hours of us arriving to Alexa Hospital, that I treated about a one-year-old boy whose right arm and right leg had been blown off by bombardment. He still had a bloody diaper on, but no leg beneath, and the flesh was still hanging off of his leg. I treated him on the ground. There were no beds or stretchers available. Next to him was a man who was taking his agonal last breaths and had been actively dying for the last 24 hours, and there were flies already on him. One woman, in the meantime, it was brought in and was declared dead on arrival. And meanwhile, my one-year-old patient was bleeding into his chest cavity, something we call a hemothorax. He needed a pediatric chest tube. He needed a pediatric blood pressure cuff. He needed um, a lot of care. And mind you, this would have been a case in the U.S. that would never have seen the ER. It would have been what we call a stat OR case. They just take him up to the operating room. But because of the complete onslaught of patients coming in, that was unavailable to us. So little was available in stock. It was complete chaos. No morphine had been given in the total panic. There was no hand soap. There was no disinfectant. The orthopedic surgeon did come, stopped the hemorrhaging, bandaged his stumps, and said, I'm sorry, but we can't take him to the OR right now. And I was completely taken aback. And I said, well, why? And he said, there's too many other more life-threatening cases that need those operating theaters right now. And then I thought to myself, what on earth could possibly be more pressing than a one-year-old with no hand, no leg, who's going to asphyxiate on his own blood? And I think I give that example because I do think it's a microcosm of how completely cataclysmic the situation is. You know, I, I've, um, I too am trying to imagine what or who could be more pressing than a child without a hand, a leg that's choking on their own blood. And then I'm thinking, like, actually, we don't need to imagine because imagining is too theoretical because this is very much a situation in which there was someone deemed more pressing than that child. And so I'm wondering, to kind of illustrate this moment and in, in your experience, do you remember which patient that was? Like that patient that did go into the operating room? Who was that? What 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 was happening to them? I don't have that information. And there's a lot of gaps in information because of the chaotic nature of things. What I can say clinically as a physician, what it could have been is that someone who was actively dying required emergency surgery, whereas in this case, one might be able to argue that we could triage, stop the bleeding, and take him in a couple of hours because he wasn't actively dying. So you're working in an environment where you and your colleagues have to make quick decisions about who is actively dying and who is slowly dying, which is a distinction. I don't even know what to do with that. Um, you told the New Yorker that you try and save every single one, but here, if you don't have the resources, the medicine, the staffing, then you have to triage in a way that prioritizes people who are most likely to live and make a good, solid recovery. And I want to understand that process a little bit. How did you and your colleagues make those assessments? Is there a rubric you're following? Are there certain indicators that suggest one patient is more likely to recover than another patient? And how quickly did you have to make those decisions that are literally life or death? Yeah, this war changed the calculus of triage completely and the spectrum on which we would and would not intervene. Of course, you want to save every single patient. Then you have to recalculate and think, 
what does that mean for that patient? If we save them and they have no access later to physical therapy, occupational therapy, mental health care, educational services, any food, how are they going to survive? And I'll be honest is that I learned from my Palestinian colleagues who had been doing this a lot longer and had a lot more experience, and they would be the one to inform us to say this case is the word they would use is hopeless, and this one we'll work on. And I take their lead and their steer on that completely because they know that. Explain how they explain their calculus to you. I think also it was around resources that were available. So if we did not have a neurosurgeon in-house, then we could not justify working on a patient that needed neurosurgery. Without a neurosurgeon, what are we doing working on this patient in-house? Or maybe they couldn't get there that day because they themselves were displaced. So working on a day-to-day basis with a changing sense of resources, and they knew what they had and how we could help patients. So the one of the things I did find comfort in sometimes, and until our morphine ran out, was to be able to provide some modicum of dignity and pain relief. When you are out of morphine, it becomes cruel otherwise to watch that unfold. And you just get a sense of like a very grotesque disregard for life in terms of dignified death in an emergency room on the floor of a Gaza emergency room. What does an undignified death look like? It looks like being on the floor with your arm or leg being blown off or having such extensive burns over your body that it is charred and the entire emergency room fills with the smell of burnt flesh. You don't know where your family is. You don't know if they're dead or alive. You have no pain control. There was a moment that my colleague in our emergency room had to say, whose body part is that? It was a leg with a boot on that was separated and had to say, don't take that outside. I don't want children seeing that. And we didn't even know whose it was because that's the level of total devastation. And then not having access to pain medication, frankly. And, you know, we tried everything from anti-anxiety meds, whatever we had, we tried. In multiple interviews, you said, as a pediatrician, I expected to not be particularly useful. Why is that? I expect that in a war that the rules of engagement apply. And that means protection of hospitals, protection of civilians, and as much protection as possible of children. The scale and the proportionality of children that I was seeing is unlike any other conflict I have been in. Um, It was staggering. I didn't expect to see that many children. I think in one of my voice notes, I noted within my line of sight, there were six children that needed urgent or emergent attention. In one case where we had our code room, which is where you actively resuscitate people from the brink of death, basically, four out of five of our patients were kids under the age of 13. That is appalling. And in your experience of doing this work for 20 years, a complete aberration. Yes, absolutely. At the end of your two weeks, was the hospital still semi-functional? Absolutely not. Staff members were dwindling. People were forcibly evacuated and they were our staff were dodging bombs and bullets just to come to work. Every day, less morphine. Every day, less oxygen and until finally no gauze, no morphine. People were recognizing me as a foreigner and asking, ceasefire, please? As I walked around them, I would be nursing new mothers on breastfeeding and there would be bombs going, coming closer and closer and smoke rising into the air. It's, it was very surreal. Every day it would get closer. Um, the forces were honing in on our hospital. How could you tell that? What were the indicators of that? Staff would tell us, okay, that one. And also, having been in conflict, you have the grim skill set of identifying a little bit. By the end, we're, oh, airstrike. Oh, no, that's gunfire. Nope, that sounds like Navy. I mean, you, because there was a coastal road that we would take and we were quite close there. You do acquire this bizarre skill set. And at one point, it was around 400 meters away, and then 100 meters away, and then a bullet went through the ICU. The following day, the Israeli military dropped leaflets in the surrounding areas, indicating it was, quote-unquote, a red area. 
And so given the history of attacks on medical staff and hospitals, we had no choice but to not continue our work there. And it had been deemed unsafe for us. What did the leaflet say? I don't know. I wasn't there. So our guest house was elsewhere. And so we didn't, I didn't have purview to the leaflet itself. I know that it was dropped in that in the surrounding areas and that there were thousands of people in in those areas because we would drive there every day and see new 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 and more shelters and tents pop up so it was not just the hospital but it was other areas and people began evacuating and i still think around well, what does that mean if you're an actual patient in that hospital right and you're the kid that i had seen that had was so badly burnt that his eyes were totally swollen, couldn't open his eyes, couldn't open his mouth to eat. Essentially, he's blind. How is he making his way out of the hospital? The, my baby's in the NICU incubators. How are they getting out? And I don't have answers for you because I don't have any follow-up on what happened to those patients. You have no answers to that? I don't. I don't know who got out and who didn't. There have been no updates given to you via WhatsApp from your colleagues? Well, from the doctors, I do have that. I have information about them and their well-being. Mm. On specific patients, it's very hard to track them down. They might be able to tell me so-and-so was had a transfer order, but I don't know what that means in that context. I don't know how an ambulance can take them anywhere. I don't know. I, from the doctors, I'm in touch um, very regularly, and they had tried to come to work several times Despite And keep in mind, they haven't been paid for several months, so they're there on a volunteer basis. There was one gentleman that came on one day, and he was there to see a friend who had been injured, and he saw the ER, and he said, oh my God, I can't leave these people. And he just started working with us. And then the other ones that I've talked to have been displaced and are trying them to find shelter, living in UNRWA shelters or living in tents. I think this is a key condition worth noting here, which is that the safety... And the well-being of your colleagues is so precarious, is such a question mark, that before they could even talk to or speak to the patients, you have to ask if they're okay, if they're still alive, if they've been displaced, which they invariably have. And you mentioned that in contrast to past conflicts that you've attended to and worked in and through, that hospitals are historically treated as sacred places that should remain untouched by combat. And now hospitals, and in turn the workers in them, are just another casualty of war. Now, Israel and, and U.S. intelligence have made claims that Hamas and another Palestinian group fighting Israel have used hospitals in Gaza as kind of makeshift command forces where they hold hostages. This was published in the New York Times. This is also reported in the Washington Post. But given your experience in the region, do you find those claims to be credible? I can only speak to what I personally bore witness to. And I personally did not bear witness to any militant activity in the hospital that I was working at. Every doctor says that exact same line. Every single doctor that's been interviewed in the last two months, whether they've appeared in the New York Times or on PBS NewsHour or NPR or 60 Minutes, I think you've done all of those. They've all said the exact same line you just said. How does everyone have the same response? And how come the response differs from these reports so greatly? I can't speak to what other people are saying. I'm only in touch with my teammates that are were there. And um, and I don't have any, we don't, it's not really a big topic of conversation because we're just still trying to process everything else. So I can't speak to how other doctors are speaking. But I mean, there are a lot of things that doctors are saying that are the same. Traumatic amputations, a massive amount of children, proportionality of children is high, burns that they've never seen before. So I imagine that that triangulation might actually bolster what we're seeing. I mean, like I said, I can only speak to what I see and I don't want to overstep. And that's where I personally don't want to overstep. And you didn't see anything like that as being described in the New York Times. I did not see anything that would indicate that, no. In recent press, you have said that after working in Gaza, every single factor of the tapestry of society has been affected. Community, schools, hospitals, food, and shelter. You said every factor of the tapestry. In real time, as you're leaving, 
What did that look like? How did that manifest? I give the example of a child that I saw around seven years old. It was not a life-threatening injury. It was a, a deep lacerations to his legs and required stitching. It's something I, as a pediatrician, would use ketamine for. Ketamine is an excellent drug in pediatrics. We use it for procedures. It provides pain management, but it also allows the patient to not remember the procedure. So amnesiac and pain management. We didn't have any. So I tried to distract the seven-year-old with whatever pediatric tools I have that we are taught in training. Some of them are bubbles or light flashers. I didn't have my bubbles with me that day, but I had something that typically would have worked. Didn't work for him. He was still screaming in agony. And then I started to do what a distraction technique that we've been taught. Children are very easily distractible and actually can withstand some degree of pain from with distraction. But every single question I might ask this kid was a total landmine. If I ask him the things that I would ask a kid in the U.S., What's your favorite subject at school? He hasn't been in school in three months. Are you closer to your mom or dad? He was bought in by an aunt or uncle, so his parents are likely dead. Um, what's your favorite food? He, I don't know, the last time that this child would have seen or eaten food. And it showed me exactly what you said, is that every single facet of their society has been impacted or dismantled from the ground up. And to get back to the targeting of hospitals, because you're right to hold space for that, it should offend every ounce of civility in all of us that hospitals would ever be targeted. And it's deeply appalling because it ties my hands to be able to save lives. It ties Palestinian doctors' hands and humanitarians from providing critical aid. I just always have thought that I would be safe in a hospital. It's never occurred to me that, that I would feel more in danger. That's wild. How does it feel that you were wrong about that? And that's why I'm speaking to you, to try and change some of that. That's why I'm speaking to media and trying to do advocacy, because it's all I can do. Because the heart of this is not a humanitarian solution, it's a political solution. And, and we're playing this sort of mental gymnastics around trying to get around, oh, how can we provide aid, how many trucks, and how many... And it's quite easy. Stop the war. It's not that hard. After the break, more from Dr. Seema Jelani. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network 
now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the City of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You have been doing press and... uh I think in doing so, you're relaying your experience as an example of this ongoing catastrophe, this healthcare crisis. And um, you're someone who's long been thinking about the ways in which doctors communicate to the media. You even designed and taught a university course in Istanbul that helped doctors become, quote, stronger political advocates for their patients. Now, do you think it is essential? that people on the front lines become political advocates for the communities they are helping day to day? I'm not sure it's essential. I think it's a skill set that we need to bring out and lean into if we're so inclined. I think there are people that are able to do that and hold space for it. And there's roles that everybody are, is playing in their own way. It doesn't all have to be advocacy and communications. It can be in other realms. I do think those people that are inclined and are good at it, that we can hone our skills better and not. There's a tendency both in medicine and sometimes in the aid world to shy away from media or to um, not partake because of distrust or not being able to communicate effectively, whatever that is. And I would argue that uh, there used to be a saying, I guess, Pacifica Radio, where I used to volunteer. I don't hate the media, be the media, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Like work with our colleagues because there are no foreign journalists there. So there is a sense of relying on eyewitness testimony. It's really important to bear witness, um, whether that comes in the media or whether they're doing it in other spaces and their communities. That I do think is is important in a situation like this. What about the way in which healthcare officials communicated to the press? bothered you enough to design and teach a class on the subject. No one creates a course and then teaches people because <laughs> they think it's going great. Uh, absolutely right. I mean, let's be honest. Doctors sometimes aren't the best communicators. There's a lot of jargon we use, even in the bedside manner. Um, I have heard some horrific stories. I also did um, med- medical evacuation flights for critically ill children, it's so important and it's such an honor and a privilege to be in, engaged in that space where you are crafting the memory for the parent of a child who is dying. It is so important to be able to speak out to the conditions that that is not happening in a vacuum. I, I practiced in Texas, so um, saw a lot of immigrant patients saw, um, did, did flights from border towns. It's not happening in a vacuum. Healthcare doesn't happen alone. It happens because of the surrounding politics around it. And if we can't express how we are constrained in those environments, then our patients are not going to have good outcomes. What would the world look like if we had doctors that could communicate the struggles of the immigrants across the border and their healthcare? What would bioterrorism look like? What would vaccination rates in the U.S. look like if we had managed that better? And that's where I come from. So it's less... A criticism of doctors, it's more like, how can we improve outcomes for our patients so we're communicating to them better? Well, let's talk about that. We're at a point here where 
where nearly 30,000 Palestinians have been killed, 70% of whom being either women or children. And while there's warfare there, there's also been a battle waged in the press that we've been talking about. Publications on the left, right, and center, mainstream and independent, that have taken stories like yours, intimate accounts of what's happening, and have used them for their own political agenda. So because of this highly divided media landscape, how are you thinking about your role in this moment? How do we tell these stories in ways that don't further divide and inflame? I take the responsibility of being a physician very seriously. We are data-based, we are science-based, and that's why part of what I say is I can only speak to what I see and not um, make inferences around that. And it's my responsibility to speak to that. People are going to and have weaponized the voices of physicians. And quite frankly, they have done so probably in every conflict. But I will also say that as a woman of color, it comes with an extra burden and responsibility, which is why sometimes I might be more careful around my words because I have an understanding that it will be used against me or I might get hate mail or whatever that is. I try to mitigate against it. It doesn't stop that from happening, but it also means that I still have the responsibility to speak up. It should reinforce the notion that this is important enough to speak up if people are willing to co-opt my message. This is the the largest and most and the bloodiest war we've seen, certainly in my lifetime. Um, and so the stakes are that much higher. The stakes of this moment, I'm thinking about Aaron Bushnell, an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force, who self-immolated in front of the Israeli embassy uh, this week. And seconds before he set himself on fire, he said, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in, extreme, in an extreme act of protest, but comparing it to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. My God. My God. Um, what more is there to say as I do these media interviews and meet with people across in D.C. and New York and the U.N.? He has an extraordinary amount of bravery and dedication and commitment and we're talking about it so he has fulfilled what he wanted and the cnn's and new york times and hopefully others are talking about it but uh i hope that his message is heard i hope that his he also is not weaponized as we are seeing in certain media and it's really important to respect his message that's extreme, right? I mean, that's something. I think what we're circling is that he did what he did for very clear reasons. Mm-hmm. And those reasons, in the same way that people have misconstrued your story, that's already happened with Aaron Bushnell. You mentioned the New York Times. Here's the headline for the article. Man dies after setting himself on fire outside of Israeli embassy in Washington. Air Force says. CNN and Reuters ran the headline, U.S. Airman sets himself on fire outside of Israeli embassy in Washington. An article about Bushnell published by NPR stated, as of Monday morning, NPR was not able to independently verify the man's motives. I mean, I'm not Peter Falk. This isn't an episode of Columbo, but it is unsettling that as we enter month six of this conflict, as 30,000 Palestinians are dead, as the remaining hostages that Hamas are harboring have not been returned, as families have been displaced, irrevocably altered, it's unsettling that some of our largest, most respected and trusted institutions can't just say it. They can't just say what Aaron's protest meant. Can't or won't? Well, they haven't. Well, that's right. They've obfuscated, they've obscured the meaning, the motives. And I'm wondering, does that erasure embolden you to keep telling these stories? Or does some part of you find it really fucking depressing and deflating? Yeah, it's really demoralizing. How much more can one speak to this? What other stories do you need? 
how much do Palestinians have to put their pain on display for someone to tap into their empathy? And is that okay? Is that is that what we're asking of people now to show the dead bodies and the idea that you know we call for civility amid active violence? That is a tool of oppression. It's a distraction. You know the, the obfuscation. You said that's the exact right word because we know everyone knows. And why aren't we saying it out loud? There's an amazing MLK quote that I'm totally going to butcher. I've almost come to the conclusion that the stumbling block in freedom is not the Ku Klux Klaner, but it's the white moderate who was more dedicated to order than to justice. And that's what we're seeing. Some dedication to order rather than to real justice. It was in his um, letter from the Birmingham jail. Right. You got the quote pretty much exactly right, by the way. <laughs> That'll be a first, but um, but I, I lean on it. You know why? Probably because I've been reflecting, Sam. I've been reflecting on why is this happening, and is this new, or is this something that oppressed people have gone through through the eons of history? And it seems like it's not new. It's been happening. You've been reflecting on all all of it, the macro and the micro. I mean, the the politics and the personal, because you yourself have continued to wade into this field of work to talk to the media about your experiences. I have to ask, President Biden has said that come next week, he hopes that there is a temporary ceasefire. Hamas very quickly responded and said there's no indication based on talks that they've had that it would end as early as next week or at least temporarily end. John Hopkins has just put out a study that has documented the damage already done that is irrevocably set in motion as a result of the last 140-something days. They've calculated the death toll even if there is a ceasefire starting Monday morning. The numbers are staggering. I would encourage everyone to read that report. I'm sure you have looked at that. If you're asked to return to Gaza, if you're permitted to return, would you go back? Yes. 100% I would. It would have to be a family decision. It would, they would go through the same processes of calculations around it. And the reason I say it with such conviction is because I've worked in post-conflict Bosnia, and I saw what happened when people didn't speak up, and I saw what happened when people left them to left people to do real evil, and I would never want to be complicit in any of that. I've met with survivors of genocide from Bosnia, and it sticks with me. It also means something when it's, one of the doctors said that they felt really forgotten by the outside world. And us simply being there was a reminder to them of some solidarity. And I thought that was really poignant. There was one scene that we were in the doctor's room and there was a nurse sobbing quietly in the corner. And I didn't know what to do. Should we leave? And it turned out that he had just pronounced a colleague dead. And said, and I said, should we leave out of respect for your grief? He said, no, can you just see my patients for me, please, while I grieve? That's something. That's, that's the reasons to go back so that they know we're there, so that they're not forgotten. And you would explain this mission and your return there to your daughter, how? It's the right thing to do. I'm in a position of power. They have children just like you. And they are just as worthy of dignity, care, music, art, and poetry, and healthcare, and education as you are. And children learn by what you show them, not what you tell them. And it's important to live a life of integrity where your words match your actions. I'm not saying necessarily I'll go back immediately or without thought. I, d I don't believe in being reckless. I don't believe in being reckless. I believe in thoughtful deliberation around it. And if I had the chance, then I'm saying, yes, under the right circumstances, I would want to go because you don't leave people. You don't leave those people to suffer as they are suffering. I mean, here's the other thing is people ask, did you make a difference? And my answer around that is, it made a difference to me and the kid that I was seeing and the babies that I held and the mom to the mother whose knees buckled when I told her that her child was no longer alive, that I was there in that moment 
to be able to comfort her. To the man who died with nothing more than my hand in his hand and me pressing water onto his lips on the floor of a Gaza emergency room. Those are the moments that make a difference to people. And it is only an honor, the, the honor of my career, to be able to help them at their time of need. And those are the moments, in your case, uh, that make a life, I think, and um, a remarkable one, I should say. I guess the last thing I have for you is um, you've been fairly active on social media, and I've noticed you keep posting, uh, at least a couple times, this quote from, uh, I think, Audre Lorde. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping if, uh, I was wondering if you would be open to reading that quote for us as we, as we leave. To read Audre Lorde on, 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 I mean, what an honor. Are you kidding? I'm not going to say no to that. Those are the people you get strength from. These people that have seen it all and have been in the fight and struggling. And how do they carry on? And so I aspire to this level of eloquence. My God. And the speaking will get easier and easier. And you will lose some friends and lovers and realize you don't miss them. And new ones will find you and cherish you. And at last, you will know with surpassing certainty that only one thing is more frightening than speaking your truth, and that is not speaking. Audre Lord. Where does that land with you today? Keep getting in good trouble. Now we're doing John Lewis. I mean, this is where you, this is really we standing on the shoulders. We are standing on the shoulders of these people. And I would not be able to do anything without people like James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison. And it's no coincidence that I owe a massive debt of gratitude to Black Americans in this country who have paved that path. And I, I should acknowledge that. I think we should acknowledge that we owe uh, a massive amount of gratitude to you um, and all your colleagues that have continued risking their lives, knowing damn well that there's a real chance they don't come home. And um, should you go back, and it sounds like there's a chance you do, yeah, um, I wish you the, uh, the well-being and, and safety that every single person you've worked on uh, deserves. And so that's all I got. Wow. Thank you. I, I don't know how to respond but thank you uh, i think what i can tell you is this that's fair I, I did i did say a lot no no no. i would say that i want to thank you of course for your research and your team's research and all of that because this was made a more this was one of the best interviews i've ever encountered in my career in talking to media and you should be proud and this i'll even have sort of on the record but i would say Thank you for not making me participate in the mental acrobatics of making my emotions palatable. You allowed for my emotions to be raw, whereas usually it has to be cloaked in respectability politics and tone policing, all of those. And I appreciate well, that. <laughs> As you noted, here at Talk Easy, we are long past respectable, so don't worry about that. At all. Awesome. Um, Happy to be associated with it then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who would have thought we would end an episode about this subject with a joke? But nonetheless, I really do thank you. And thank you for the kind words. Godspeed. Likewise. Right back at you. Dr. Seema Jelani, take care. Take care. business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, 
and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC, copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you like to listen. If you want to go above and beyond, you can share the show on Twitter, Instagram, add us at TalkEasyPod. Share the show with a friend, online or offline, whatever you do. All of it really does help us continue making this show each and every Sunday. I want to give a special thanks this week to James Sussman at the IRC, Sean Michaels, our engineer out of Houston, and our guest today, Dr. Seema Jelani. To support her work along with other rescue efforts in Palestine, we'll include resources in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. For more episodes, I'd recommend our talks with Gloria Steinem, Maria Ressa, and David Rendick. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at Spotify Studios in Los Angeles, California and Circle Music Group in Houston, Texas. Our music is by Dylan Peck. 
Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Research assistance from Sharia Aronke. Graphics by Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Eric Sandler, Kira Posey, Jordan McMillan, Tara Machado, Justine Lang, Sarah Nix, Malcolm Gladwell, Greta Cohen, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.